Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Bill George. Bill's best known for his remarkably successful tenure as Chief Executive Officer at Medtronic, where he helped lead the company through a period of tremendous growth from a mid-sized company to one with more than $10 billion in annual revenue. He retired after 13 years with the company in 2002 and has spent much of his time since as a professor at Harvard Business School and as a coach and mentor to other leaders. He's written multiple books, including Authentic Leadership, Discover Your True North, and his latest, True North, Leading Authentically in Today's Workplace. I look forward to speaking with him about his remarkable career and life. Bill George, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. Thank you, Peter, for having me on your show. Well, you're very kind. But first, a quick word from our partner, Adyen, and the company's chief operating officer, Cameron Zaki. Adyen is a payment platform company that allows businesses to accept e-commerce, mobile, and point-of-sale payments. And Cameron wanted to provide a short overview of what Adyen has to offer. Cameron, over to you. Thanks, Peter. It's one global platform on which you can do many continents and countries, all the relevant payment methods, which vary significantly across different parts of the world to online and physical world or mobile. And we've continued to expand from there. If you go to a dinner party and people ask you what you do and you say this, they're like, that sounds like common sense. Why is it unique? The reality is that a lot of the players who've been around for decades have grown on mainframe computing, releasing once or twice a year, buying other companies, and then they give you one API. But behind the scenes, it's a bit of a spaghetti mess, unfortunately. What Adyen did and what we do is sort of really do the backend plumbing that is a little less sexy at times, but really makes the difference in being able to say, hey, it was Peter. Do you know that he, you know, shops online and on mobile and in your store and you can recognize him and you can connect all the dots and it's not just enabling the payment but it's hey how do you factor that into loyalty and marketing and all kinds of other use cases thanks cameron and now on to the interview uh bill i, I wanted to start with a story that you tell uh, about a conversation you had with your father when you were just nine years old he had very specific goals for you and uh remarkably, uh, perhaps propelled you towards some of your accomplishments as a result of that. I wonder if you wouldn't mind telling that story here. I'm the only child of, uh, of older parents. And uh, my father came to me one day and said, son, I failed to become the leader I should have become. Uh, I would like you to take over and, and overcome that failure and be that leader. And then he started uh, uh, suggesting the kind of companies that there's a company in Atlanta, Georgia, I've held stock in this company since 1937. Uh, it's called the Coca-Cola Company. You could be head of that company, son. And he mentioned others like Procter & Gamble and IBM. Of course, I'm a nine-year-old kid. I don't know anything. I did drink Coca-Cola in those days, but I didn't anything about these companies. And in some ways, I was pushing my father away because my mother was a source of values. On the other hand, subliminally, I was taking this in. So I think I'm supposed to be some kind of leader. And I Joined a lot of organizations in junior high and high school, and I'd never chosen to lead anything, not like the student council, uh, uh, not even co-captain in my uh, high school tennis team. But uh, eventually I became, uh, <laughs> I ran for president senior class. And when the votes came in, I lost it by a margin of two to one. So it was pretty clear that uh, people didn't see me as a leader because I wasn't, because I hadn't learned by that time, Peter. Leadership is all about relationships and how you build long-term trusting relationships with people. Very interesting. I, I wonder, you know, as you reflect upon that, uh, what he desired for you, maybe not the specific companies that he named, but uh, uh, what he had in mind for you at nine came to pass. And so to what extent 
do you feel as though that was something that was good in some ways, uh, charting a course for you that you were able to reach versus uh, some unusual pressure to put on a nine-year-old? And as somebody who's now a father, I wonder if you have further reflections upon the wisdom of a conversation like that with uh, such a young person. Well, I, I joined Honeywell, great global company. I had a fabulous mentor, a man named Ed Spencer. Uh, and uh, I love working in a great global thing. He gave me the opportunity to be president of Honeywell Europe, Middle East, and Africa when I was 38 years old. What a wonderful experience. I got called back early, two-step promotion, worst promotion in my life, and just involved in turnarounds. And I love to be with, with people, with the customers, with employees. You know, I'm chasing numbers for nine different divisions, lots of turnarounds. So I can do them. No one else want to do them. I could do them. And as soon as I got one done, they'd send me another set of businesses. And Finally, the third set of businesses. And uh, one day I uh, I was driving home. And by the way, I'm now one of, this is the goal. I'm one of the uh, two uh, leading candidates to be CEO of Honeywell. And, uh, and I, I uh, you know, I've, I look myself in the mirror, Peter, and I saw a miserable person, me, because I was really losing sight of my true north. Although we didn't use it in those days. I was losing sight of who I was. I was trying to pretend like I was some kind of great leader, wearing cufflinks, trying to impress the board of directors, the top management, but it wasn't who I was. And I was inside deeply unhappy. But if you ask me, oh, I'm doing fine, even though I'm traveling 80% of the time. So uh, I talked to my wife, uh, who counseled me to realize that, yeah, I wasn't happy. And I went to my men's group, which meets every Wednesday morning. And uh, they said, well, you turned down my track three times. Why did you turn down? And you'll see the ego coming out here, Peter. Uh, I said, well, Medtronic, uh, it's just a mid-sized company. I thought it was going to run a giant company. And that propelled me to really think about how important was that. And I realized that wasn't more important, which is more important family staying here in Minneapolis. And uh, I called the CEO back and asked him, was the job still open that I turned down four months before? And it turned out it was. And I wound up joining the company. It was the best move I ever made. And of course, I didn't realize that sometimes with the right kind of technology and innovation and the right culture, a mid-sized company can become a very large company, as we've seen with a lot of other companies since that time. And so we were very fortunate to, to grow the business. And uh, I think when I went there, it was uh, like, uh, I don't know, 750 million. Today, it's like 31 billion. And we were able to grow it through innovation and some acquisitions as well. So just a great opportunity. Now, you asked me about my own sons. Uh, I have two sons, no daughters, and they're now in their mid-40s, and uh, I never, I tried hard not to do what my father did, not to pressure them, and my older son uh, kind of followed my footsteps and has been an outstanding business person, even though I was counseling him, maybe you want to go into foreign affairs, he got a master's at Johns Hopkins, and maybe you want to go in a different field, and no, he wanted to do this. I said, okay, if that's what you want to do, and then he wound up going to business school. The other son, I was just with this weekend, is a great surgeon. And he doesn't want to leave. He didn't want to be chair of the surgery department. He is a great head and neck cancer surgeon doing, helping people with stage four cancers. And uh, he just loves being a great surgeon. He said, Every day, dad, I'm helping people. Uh, but he doesn't want to have all the pressures of leadership. So I think it, we have to let people each go their own way. Now, my father wasn't wrong about me. I don't think that's immodest, but I don't think he got it wrong. I just think that uh, that was the kind of pressure that I maybe didn't need. Well, Bill, you you talked about how you uh, looked in the mirror and didn't like what you saw in terms of the leader that you were and the person you were uh, when you were at Honeywell. 
But you referred, by contrast, to joining Medtronic as coming home in a way. You talked about the mission of the organization as restoring people to full life and health, and um, that that was something that really spoke to you and something that you thought you could rally around and rally others around as well. Talk a bit about uh, that those early days and, and uh, finding this new home uh, that fits so nicely at Medtronic. Yeah, Honeywell had a new CEO who was very different than the mentor that who had retired. And uh, it was somewhat, uh, you know, I felt like I had to put on the armor every day coming into the office to protect myself from getting beaten up uh, over some of these turnarounds we were trying to do. But beyond that, uh, the mission was making money. And I organized a group of executive vice presidents go to the CEO to say, no, we have to serve customer needs first. We have to create a great employee environment. They said, no, no, it's the mission here is making money. They were, I think, uh, frankly, they, I think they were tracking GE and channeling the, the approaches GE used in those days. And, uh, and so, uh, and I've always believed that if you gain a lot of market share, if you create all new markets, you have a highly motivated workforce. And by the way, that is what motivates your workforce, not uh, making 391 a share, but uh, serving customer needs. Uh, you will grow your shareholder value. And of course, that's the formula we have provided, applied at Medtronic, and that worked perfectly. Invest heavily in new products, grow market share in our core business, add on a lot of new businesses, and keep investing. And, and people were really motivated around that core mission of restoring people to full life and health. One thing we did, Peter, is for the the organization, which grew from like 4,000 up to about 100,000 today, we kept the metric for the people was not earnings per share, not uh, was the metric was how many seconds will it take until another person's restored to full life and health by Medtronic product? When I went there, it was 100 seconds. Time I left, it was seven. Today, it's two per second. So you can see the company's growth has continued to serve more people. And that's what turns people on at the at the first line, first line workers that are innovating and, and providing the quality in the production lines and serving doctors and hospitals. Bill, you've also spoken about the importance of relationships, that uh, as a leader, you need to forge them uh, and build strong ones. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about some of the element, elements associated with that. Um, what did you find worked best in building those strong relationships, especially as the company continued to grow? Well, I, I think as a leader, it's extremely important in building relationships to, to tell the truth, admit your mistakes, because if a leader can't admit his or her mistakes, no one else is going to be able to. And try to create an environment of transparency and candor. I mean, if we had a quality product of Medtronic, the only way I could know about it is someone brought it to me. And it was extremely important that we had a transparent environment at the same time, we created that, let's tell the truth. And I used to say, truth is not the absence of lying. Truth is telling the whole truth and not putting a Band-Aid over the, the problems we have. That's kind of what Boeing did with the 737. And then that's the only way you create trust. And I think relationships are all about trust, is do you trust me? Now, that, to do that, then I have to understand what are your goals, what are your hopes, and where are your dreams, and how can we find an alignment between what Medtronic's trying to do and what you want to do? Look, if you're just here to get a fancier car or uh, a bigger house, yeah, you can get that with Medtronic. But I think if you really should be here because you're trying to help people uh, have their health restored. I also found it fascinating as you talked about uh, the environment you grew up in, Bill, was one of 
uh, the, the thought process that the person at the head of the company needed to be the smartest person in the room, the highest IQ, uh, but that you came to realize that emotional intelligence, EQ, was uh, as important, if not more important, uh, in terms of a leadership quality. Talk a bit about that, that insight and your own evolution relative to the topic. Well, we're learning that. I can't say I started out with a high level of EQ. I had to learn it. I had to gain self-awareness. There were times when I had a lot of blind spots and some shadow sides, and I had to accept my own weaknesses and be open about those with people because everyone else could see them and I couldn't. And, uh, and you know, at Honeywell, the issue was I had no passion for the business of valves in the boiler room. When I got to Medtronic, I had real passion for the business and finding that. And at the same time, you know, when you're pulling out a product where somebody may live or die, you need to have real compassion for patients. If that product doesn't work, you got a real problem. And uh, and we need to have empathy for our employees, certainly as post-COVID environment, but even way back then. Do you have empathy for people going through difficult times? Because everyone does from time to time. And then finally, I think you need to have real courage today. And that's an EQ quality. How do you have courage to lead through the crises we're going through, to make the bold call that may or may not work out? And I've seen some great managers, Peter, that had no courage and their companies eventually atrophied because they were, willing, were not willing to make the bold moves. And I think that's required. So those four qualities of EQ, self-awareness, passion, compassion, uh, and, uh, and courage are really essential today for leaders. Yes, if, you, if you're not the smartest person, you can surround yourself with somebody who is. Uh, I remember I teamed up. I knew nothing about medicine. I went to mentor. I teamed up with a great medical doctor who was absolutely brilliant and could guide us. He could see what was going to happen 10 years out and could guide us into these new technologies. He had a brilliant way of doing it. So I relied heavy on, heavily on him as a partnership. By the way, just for the record, I totally rejected my whole career, the command and control. I saw a lot of it in the Defense Department. Frankly, I saw a lot of it in industries where I started out, uh, and I just don't believe in that style. I think it really is about empowering your people. You also speak and write very candidly, a Bill, about a really trying time for you when you were young and early in your career, when you lost your beloved mother, as well as your fiance in relatively short order, these two crushing losses coming close together, as I say, and, and that it was another lesson in empathy that uh, you learned from colleagues of yours uh, at the time. To talk a bit about uh, that lesson, if you would. A great question. Yes, I went through a rough time in my uh, mid-20s with those two losses you mentioned. Uh, and I was blessed to have a lot of friends that came around me and supported me and roommates. I was ready to move out and they helped me move back in. They were there to support me in that time. And uh, I felt uh, my faith helped me, but also uh, a person came into my life. Uh, I always say one door closes, maybe another one will open. In my case, it really did. And my wife, Penny, came into my life a few months after that. And we've been together for 53 years. So uh, I've been blessed. And I can't explain all this other than to say that, uh, you know, life can be hard. And it caused me, I was the hard charging guy trying to move ahead too far, too fast. That's always my weakness. And this really caused me to slow down and reflect on what's life all about? What's important? How long do we have? In both cases, I didn't get the chance to say goodbye because these things just happen suddenly. Well, uh, do you are you there for people at the, at the last day or when they're going through hard times? Are they going to come back? And I've seen a lot of people come back from uh, difficult times. So, yeah, I try to be there, even including Peter. I, 
I call up uh, CEOs that seemingly got uh, pushed out from the job. No one used the term fired anymore, but they uh, suddenly were out of a job and trying to show some empathy and get together with them and say, look, you're young. You've got a lot of potential. What are you going to do next? What's coming along? And uh, and showing that and uh, and trying to help uh, also CEOs that are in their jobs, but having a tough time and trying to help them. I want to get to some of the lessons of your latest book. You talk a lot about uh, the necessity of finding this notion of the true north. Uh, it's a message that's come through in multiple parts of our conversation already. And there's an organizing principle that you write about, an acronym called COACH, uh, C-O-A-C-H. And I wonder if you could hash out the, the different aspects of that acronym and, and provide some definition of each of those elements, please. Well, you mentioned earlier the command and control, which was dominant for 30 years. I think, and that has been the dominant uh, leadership style of the baby boomers. I think we're now moving to new generation leaders, Gen Xers, millennials, eventually Gen Z. And uh, I think they have to lead in a very different way. So I'm a strong believer in empowerment, but what does that mean? How does one lead? And so we came up with this acronym that be more of a coach. Think about the best coach you've ever had, whether it's a professional coach or a sports coach, or even a teacher that reached out to you what qualities did they bring? Well, I think the first thing they bring is they care for you. That's the first C, is they care about you. They care about how you're doing. You find that cares, as you mentioned earlier when I went to two desks. Uh, the second thing you have to do is to get people organized in what we call their sweet spot. That is where they're, uh, they play to their strengths and they're highly motivated. You see, at Honeywell, I had some strengths, but I wasn't passionate about the business. And I got to Medtronic and I was. And in this case, uh, you know, if we can organize people where they're really good, you don't want to take a great marketing person, put them in a finance role, get that team around you or people, and then align them. Uh, that's the A, align them around the mission and values. And if you can align people around that, the results will follow. It's that key is that alignment. A lot of people feel out of alignment. That's why we've seen the great resignation. But if you can create that alignment, that's the leader's job. At the next C, stands for challenge. Look, this is not soft. Every good coach challenges you. Peter, you can step up your game. You can do a lot better. Let me help you. Here are some things that uh, you know you need to do to improve. So it's a combination of challenging, and the final letter is help, of helping people. Let me show you how, or let's, let's get down and solve this problem. We got a particular technical problem here we're trying to solve. Let's, I'll work with you, or you know what? I may not be the expert. I can help you align experts from Japan or Europe to come in and help work with you to solve this difficult problem. So there you have, I think, a new way of thinking about leadership today, being a coach rather than a director that tells you what to do and judges you after the fact. I think it's much more important to be engaged with your people. Bill, you also wrote a terrific book in 2003 called Authentic Leadership. And clearly uh, something you thought quite a bit about uh, to put it into book form, but you also articulate some of the key elements of authentic leadership. And I wonder if you could share those uh, here as well. You know, it's so basic is to be genuine and be real. I wrote this book because remember, we're coming out of the, the 90s and uh, the early 2000s and the role model was General Electric. And it was a very different kind of leadership. It was very much command and control. And I just felt that was wrong. And I never was close to a lot of the CEOs in my era because I felt like I was leading the wrong way. It was, it was about charisma and power. And I think today people want to work for somebody who is genuine and real and authentic. So it's that basic. But I think to be authentic, 
That means you have to have a clear set, a clear purpose and a clear set of values, which we then define as your true north. So if you know your purpose, you know your values and the principles you're going to lead by, then you can become the kind of leader that people want to work for today. And people are not going to work for someone who's a jerk. Uh, They're saying people leave, don't leave companies, they leave bad managers. And there are way too many people like that that are all out for themselves. And that was the 90s. Uh, I think it's very different today. It's taken us a while to get there, but now, now that is the order of the day, is authentic leadership has become the gold standard for virtually every company I know. You share a number of cautionary tales in your recent writing, Bill. For example, you talk about honoring net worth more than self-worth um, and the necessity for us to rebalance that to a much greater degree. Talk a bit about some of your own reflections in that direction, if you would. I used to tell students when I went to Harvard Business School, Peter, if, you're, if your self-worth is based on your net worth, you know you're in trouble. And uh, hey, look, if you're successful, you will do well financially. And if you only trace the dollar, you might find that you get there and it's hollow. Uh, I cited somebody in my book, a new book, uh, Hugh Barry Jolie at Best Buy, who said early in his career, he got to the mountaintop and he realized it was very hollow. Uh, there was no sense of satisfaction. And he found that when he went to Best Buy. So I think that it's really important that one uh, figure out what is what what gives me deep satisfaction. And probably it's not just counting my uh, my net worth every night. It really is the relationship that I build with people. Did I help someone today? Chip Berg out of Levi's talks about, did I help someone today? Was I good for my team? Do we stay true to our values? Were we helping our customers? And just that simple taking 20 minutes a day to reflect on those questions can make a big difference in your life and how you, more importantly, how you lead. Very interesting indeed. I appreciate you sharing those insights. You also mentioned a conversation you had with John Cotter um, a professor about the time you were going to turn 60 and his reflections on the importance of your life from that point forward. And, and I, I'd love to have you share some of the details of that story here, if you would. Well, John Cotter was the leadership guru at Harvard Business School. He left just about the time I arrived, unfortunately, but he had a breakfast with me and he said, Bill, uh, you're 59, you're going to turn 60 next year. Think about everything you've done between the age of 30 and 60. Uh, now, You've got about 30 years ahead of you, 60 to 90. Uh, aren't you a lot wiser now? Think of all you could accomplish in the next 30 years, which was a very nice way of saying, don't retire, keep going. And uh, that's when I uh, started teaching and decided that I, you know, my purpose of helping other people didn't change. Just the venue changed from one company to working with people across a lot of organizations, young people all the way up to very large companies, largest company CEO serving on boards. But I felt that was really an important conversation to think about what I could contribute for the next 30 years. And so I now make a principle, Peter, of meeting with people when they're get, reaching the end of their, their time as CEO. And I say, what do you want to do next? Please don't retire to Florida. Let's talk about what you can do to make a contribution. You maybe don't work 80 hours a week like or 70 hours a week like you are, but you can make a real contribution. You've noted that you have a men's group that you've been meeting with for, I believe it's something like 45 years now, and you discuss uh, topics in your lives and you help each other. Uh, you form sort of a kitchen cabinet for each other, as I understand it. I wonder if you could share a little bit more about that group and by extension, recommendations you would have for others in finding a comparable group for themselves. 
Well, I can say this group uh, has been invaluable, uh, invaluable to me in my life in those difficult periods. Uh, we formed uh, back when I was in my 30s, and there are about four of us that came together. We've been off at a series of, uh, of retreats, but uh, we said, let's get together. And so we, we decided to get together, met in the basement of a church uh, every uh, Wednesday morning from 7.15 to 8.30. We're still meeting uh, once a week, believe it or not. And sometimes I miss, like I did last week when I was out teaching. Uh, but it's been an invaluable group. It's where do you go when you're facing difficult times? Like when my wife was facing cancer, when I was unhappy at Honeywell. Other people, uh, you know, they've had uh, se severe health problems. We're there for each other. And we talk about the really important issues of life. And I did write a book uh, with one of the members of the group called True North Groups. And to say, I think everyone needs that small group. We use these in every single program I teach at Harvard Business School and all the offsite work I do with companies of putting people in small groups where you can really have very intimate discussions. And someone you know that even though they come from a very different background than you do, uh, you know, you share a lot of common experiences. And I think it's having that sense of intimacy that you wouldn't have in a large crowd through being able to be open with people that builds that deep sense of bonding and trust. Bill, you've been such a font of knowledge on the necessity to build strong relationships uh, as, a, as a key element to growth, both of leadership, but of course of teams and companies. And certainly the, the nature of that is going to change in a hybrid world, a, a world where most companies anticipate more of a hybrid means of working and therefore not as close contact with one's colleagues on a regular basis. And I, I wonder if you've had a chance to give some thought to new ways of operating to ensure that a greater degree of distance, at least at times, doesn't lead to negative consequences as teams uh, aspire to continue to, to grow. Peter, that's a very profound question. It's the number one concern I have every CEO I talk about today. It's not earnings per share. Uh, you mentioned hybrid work. I believe in hybrid work. I believe in workplace flexibility. If you have to go, my daughter-in-law is a physician, has to go to her son's uh, uh, parent-teacher conference. She needs to be able to go at three o'clock in the afternoon, not feel like she can't. What, or you have to go to the doctor. But uh, I do worry about, we learn how to teach remotely. We learn how to work remotely. I worry about all remote work and people are not coming into the office because I think when you're with a group of people, the mentoring comes naturally. You learn from more senior people. You learn from the wisdom. I don't care if it's a law firm, a medical firm, a, you know, a, <coughs> a hospital, or a business. It's the same thing. You're learning as a young person from the people around you. Some of it's liminal learning, yeah, but there is a lot of mentoring and teaching that goes on. And I think the other thing is you mentioned the casual conversation. I learn more not sitting in meetings in my office or in the conference room on PowerPoint charts. I learn much more going around just talking to people at where they work, at their desk or in the, on the production lines or having lunch with your production workers or going through the labs and say, hey, what are you working on? What innovation excites you, Peter? And getting into the medical centers and talking to our customers and seeing what works, though that's where I really learn about the business. And I think one of the questions big organizations have today is, how do you know what's going on? If you're not out with your people, who are actually on the front line. We've diminished the front line. And I think we need to restore the value and importance of front line workers. After all, they got us through COVID. So I think we need to rethink that whole scene uh, about how we value our front line uh, people. And you, 
we, you know, need to get out there with people. And frankly, if you're not in the office, you can't do that. Now, I think when I've done a lot of team building with people that hadn't been together for two years, the energy is super high. People come to the classroom really high. Uh, but once you establish the trust, then you can carry it on more remotely. Maybe not 100%, but I think you can do a lot more remotely. But I worry about innovation. Are you going to get those uh, free-floating little ideas that people put together, get people collaborating? Because the innovation today is not just one genius with a great idea. It's really the collaboration of people coming together to solve a really tough problem. And that's uh, that's what I see is, is I think is critical. So I think, you know, some form of work, definitely workplace flexibility, some form of hybrid work is the order of the day. But I do not believe in young people saying I'm never coming into the office because you will not be the one that gets the promotion, I'll guarantee you. Bill, I also have to ask you, you know, it appears as though we're heading into some economic headwinds at present. There are a number of uh, factors that that would lead one to that conclusion, uh, issues, uh, geopolitical, the downstream impacts and broader impacts of the war in Ukraine, uh, issues of inflation, supply chain, among uh, among many others that could be noted right now. You have led through numerous downturns, and though no two are alike, uh, certainly the, the more one experiences downturns, the, the more one has uh, ideas, reflections, muscles that they've built that they can call upon. And I wonder, especially for younger leaders who may have never been through a downturn, what sort of advice you would have during these sorts of times to ensure that one can see uh, see through to to better times on the other end. Well, you very clearly just highlighted the crises we're in. I can't remember a time in my lifetime when we had so many multiple intersecting crises. I wasn't around during the Great Depression and the start of World War II. Maybe that was one. But today, these are multiple intersecting crises. So do I keep my business is strong? Do I keep hiring, knowing there may be a recession coming? We've never seen... Uh, inflation like this since the uh, 40 years, since the early 1980s. I remember living through that period, and it was very tough. That was 18, 20% inflation, interest rates. It was a mess. And we've had one crisis at a time. Now we've got those six or seven you mentioned. So I think it takes real leadership skill and tremendous adaptability. My advice to leaders is to be clear about your vision and your purpose. Don't deviate from that. But you have to be adaptable, like a good sailor who will continue tacking back and forth to try to catch the wind. So you you have to do that. You have to be very flexible. Uh, frankly, I'm telling, I'm advising CEOs, don't hire right now. Slow down the hiring. You can't hire anyway. And just figure out how to get more done with fewer people because we probably are coming into a recession. There are no historical examples where interest rates, rates went way up to try to tame inflation. And, uh, and there was not a recession that followed. So yeah, it, it may be tough yet. We've had a lot of good years behind us for the last 12, 13, 14 years. So, uh, uh, but be conservative because you preserve your cash and uh, and make sure your team is close around you, that they're not going going off. And that's a big issue right now with the, the resignation we're seeing. So how do you keep people inspired around what we're trying to do? That is key. So I, I think it's a good time for prudence and caution you don't have to stop hiring, but I would be very cautious about it. Bill, you've noted a number of of aspects that could be categorized as secrets to your success. Uh, the beginning with your great marriage, the great family life that you have, the priority you've given it, 
And, and um, I wonder if there are other things you would call out as having been difference makers for you along the way uh, as you've charted a pathway to a more meaningful life and career. Uh, we'd be interested in your thoughts. Well, you're very kind to say those things. I do think it's about being an integrated leader and having an integrated life. There's no such thing, Peter, as perfect uh, work-life balance. But I think being the same person at work, at home, in your community, and in your personal life, and making sure you take time for all of that. We talk in the seminars I lead about the buckets of your life and how do you get the right kind of balance there. And maybe you, I used to mark off vacations uh, on January 1st, say, well, here's the time we're going to take vacation. So that's sacrosanct. And we have to do our planning meetings at different times. And uh, these are school vacations. But so I think being that integrated leader, but I think and having that full life and being uh, really listening and building people, you can a support team around you. Who can you really count on? In my case, my wife, Penny, you need to have one person with whom you can tell everything. And she and I share everything. At the same time, you've mentioned our men's group. We have a couples group that meets regularly. They're there to support us. We support each other. People are going through tough times in our group right now. And I think also having wise mentors in your life. I have wise mentors now. A number of my mentors, like Warren Dennis and my former boss at Honeywell, died. And uh, But I now have younger mentors. And Nori is the former dean of Harvard Business School. is a great mentor and a guide to how to survive an academic life and wisdom. And so I think having those wisdom people in your life. And finally, a lot of people are hiring coaches today. That's a good thing. So, uh, you know, having somebody that can kind of see you and give you really candid advice. So I think having that support team keeps you grounded. The key for any leader is to stay grounded. Never get too high on yourself. Never get too caught up because I go to Davos and I meet with all these important people. But to stay grounded with people that matter in your life. I remember once Jamie Dimon said, when he got, he said that his crucible was getting fired at Citigroup by Sandy Weil, who'd been his mentor for 23 years. He said, you know, the phone stopped ringing. The only people that were there for him were his high school and college buddies and his wife and daughters. And they went off to Chicago. Of course, the story is he, he came back and was wildly successful, but he had that difficult period. And I think one of the reasons for Jamie's success and he pulled through cancer and everything else was because he had gone through that searing crucible. But he stayed, even today, stays grounded. He never gets so high on himself. Very well said and wonderfully articulated, Bill. Thank you so much. Uh, and thank you, more generally speaking, Bill George, for a really uh, fantastic conversation covering your remarkable career and lessons drawn from a very uh, purpose-led life, clearly. Uh, it's been really enjoyable for me. And thank you so much for taking time uh, to share some of those insights in this conversation. Thank you, Peter.